I'm Carrie Miller, and this Friday you'll hear my conversation with novelist Misha Marin. Her story is set at the southern border and explores the art, activism, and identity of a border community. She even took pro wrestling lessons so she could write about the culture of wrestling in Mexico. Identity and culture in a new land are themes that interest novelist Yah Jesse. Her novel Homegoing delved into the legacy of slavery in Africa, Britain, and America. In her second novel, Transcendent Kingdom, she asks what it means to leave family behind in Ghana for all of the complexities of life in contemporary America. Here's that interview with Yah Jesse. Good morning. I'm Carrie Miller. Good to have you listening. Writer Yah Jesse made a good friend in high school in a small city in Alabama. The friendship would endure even though they would go to different colleges and pursue different careers in different places. But Yah Jesse's friend Tina would be deeply influential in the conception of her new novel. And one of the pleasures of this story is delving into the mysteries of how our brains work. Here's my conversation with writer Yah Jesse. You know, having read the novel, I maybe you can relate to this. I, I feel like I emerged from it with this like mini degree in neuroscience. I could <laughs> I could really yeah. feel your curiosity coming off the page and. I know you have a good friend who works in this field, but I'm interested in the kinds of conversations that you two had that opened the door to making this such a a central part of the novel. Mm, yeah. Um, well, we, we spent a lot of time talking about the ins and outs of her work, obviously. Um, she studies something called the neural circuitry of reward-seeking behavior, but the way that she always explained it to me as a layperson was that she studied addiction and depression. Um, so we would kind of talk about the implications that this research had um, for humans, basically the idea that um, for people who continue to seek risk um, or continue to seek reward, rather, even though there was risk involved, um, suddenly understanding which neural pathways were involved in that process um, meant that they no longer had to kind of keep um, pressing the lever, keep seeking reward. Um, so we, we talked about that. Um, I think we also spent a lot of time talking just about kind of um, what it means to, to seek pleasure in general, what it means to kind of be the creature that we are, animals, um, that that want to that drive toward um, toward pleasure, toward reward, um, even given risk. And obviously, we all do that um, with varying degrees of risk involved. Um, but to to hear it from her perspective was really fascinating. You know, it's I think there's a culture that says wrongly that it's about willpower, right? If if you mm-hmm. just know how to access enough willpower, you won't succumb to addiction. You won't succumb to those pleasure-seeking impulses and to that neurocircuitry that leads you. I mean, that's that's a true misunderstanding of this, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And it's an, a misunderstanding that, that I had as well before researching. I think really? um, I, you know, 
Yeah, to some to, to some extent, you know, I think I I thought that there was more um, more of an element of willpower involved than there than there is, but um, it's it's a stark fact that um, that many of these drugs, and I was looking at opioids in particular, um, change the or rewire the circuitry of your brain. That's not a small thing to overcome. That's not something you can kind of choose your way out of once that change has taken place. Um, there's this great uh, article on the New York Times called uh, How Opioids Hijack the Brain mm-hmm. that came out in 2018. And it was a it was kind of a, a visual essay. Um, and one fact that I read in this essay was that in order for the average person to obtain a single year of uh, sobriety, they go through four to five relapses over the course of eight years. Oh, um, wow. And that that figure, I think, is could be shocking to many of us who, who don't understand that relapse is a part of recovery and that it has to do with the fact that um, you are attempting to just kind of, again, rewire your brain back to the place where it was before these um, opioids hijacked it. And it's not all about just wanting sobriety badly enough that you, you know, that you can make it work. Right. Exactly. So sometimes I I guess I would think for Tina and other scientists who are so eager to know and doing this kind of fascinating work, there must be a temptation to say, if I could teleport 35 or 50 years into the future, what would my work look like? How much would we know that even though the pace of this is moving quickly, it's not answering all of the questions. What What did she tell you about that? Um, you know, I don't know if we talked about that specifically. I'm, I'm sure, though, that you're right, that if, um, if she had the opportunity to, to travel into the future, um, she she would take it uh, for the for the chance to know just a little bit more than what she knows. One thing that I um, that we did talk about and that I, I found interesting in, in my research in general is just um, how slow this work actually is. You mm-hmm. know that uh, that we're looking at not these kind of um, magnificent changes, but actually very small changes, um, even within this. Uh, particular experiment that I detail in the in the novel, wherein these ma- mice are trained to uh, press a lever in order to get insure, um, and sometimes they get insure, but other times they get a foot shock instead. And um, ultimately, what the researcher is trying to discover is which of these two neural pathways that she suspects is involved in this behavior is truly involved, um, and that that seems small to, to the lay person, I think, who doesn't understand what a significant achievement it is to be able to narrow that down. Um, and so uh, ultimately, again, what we're looking at is really small changes, really slow work. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm sure that Tina would love to, to travel 50 years down the line <laughs> in order to see uh, what other small changes kind of can accumulate to, to equal a large change. It's such a good point. We we should say that our scientist in the novel is gifty. And she's, she's as you've said, she's setting up these experiments. And you've imbued her with, as you've just said, 
patience, but impatience, I think just just Mm. kind of the right amount, this sense of humility that there is, and, Mm. and I think this is, this is probably common to a lot of great scientists that no matter what you learn and no matter what contribution you're making to scientific knowledge, there is still a humility that you stand on the shoulders of all the research that's come before you and that you might be contributing a very small bit of knowledge to the overall understanding. Do do you think that's right? Yeah, I do think that's right. I think um, there's a great deal of humility in, in recognizing that you're contributions, albeit them, albeit important, um, still are, are are working on this scale of um, of the kind of minute. Um, and I think there's something too humbling about the fact that, as Gifty says in the novel, we don't know what we don't know. Um, so there's there's just so much uh, questioning that this character goes through. Um, all of these questions that she has. Um, she realizes at the end of the day, many of them cannot be answered in her lifetime. Um, and, and that must be humbling to, to enter a field um, wherein you desperately want to know something that you know you will never be able to know. I mean, even when you hear Nobel Prize winners talk about their scientific contribution, of course there is pride to their contribution mm-hmm. to knowledge. But you so often hear them talk about everything else that, you know, that that might be connected and still unknown to this. It Mm. it seems like you understood that on a kind of visceral level. So so let me ask you it this way. As you conceived of Gifty's characteristics and personality traits, I mean, what were you thinking about as you as you you know, put this, this together? Mm. Well, I was thinking about Gifty as a character who is incredibly curious um, and finds her curiosity often at odds with, um, with what she is able to know. Right. And I think for her, there's, there are a few things at work. One is that she herself has been touched by the things that she studies. She has a brother who um, who passed away due to a heroin overdose, and she has a mother who has fallen into a depression. Um, so she knows about this um, these topics on a personal level, on a visceral level, but she's trying to think about them ideologically um, and and scientifically. Um, and that disconnect between what she knows by feeling um, and what she wants to know um, by by research, I think, is what forms her as a character. She's she's a character who can't quite reconcile the the traumas of her life, the traumas of watching um, the people that she loves um, kind of fall into these situations that they could not get out of. Um, watching that while knowing that her research uh, could approach an answer but couldn't quite capture the answer. Um, and so I think of her as um, a kind of controlled character, a guarded character, um, an incredibly intellectual and curious character, 
um, but also a, a character who is dealing with um, a great deal of loss. And it's within that loss um, that she that she tries to find. You know, this is what I think makes her so compelling that she, as you've said, she she possesses this kind of boundless curiosity and this ill intellectual Mm -hmm. brilliance. And and then there's the contrast between, you know, pursuing this kind of understanding in in her laboratory and then just Mm -hmm. the the ordinariness, I guess, is how I thought of it, of taking care of her mother of, you know, going back to her apartment and her mother is still in the grips of this depression and Gifty is, you know, coming into the room with little things to eat or or something that will rouse uh, her mother for the day. Um, Mm -hmm. It it reminded, you know what it reminded me of? That, That no matter how far we go or how high we fly, we're still our parents' children. <laughs> right? mm, that That's yeah, the contrast yeah. in a lot of our lives, isn't it? Yes, of course. I think um, that is the central relationship of the novel. And um, I was really interested in, in thinking about caretaking. Um, Gifty's mother is herself a caretaker. She's a home health aide, um, which is a profession that um, that we're hearing a lot about these days now right. that um, we're seeing um, our elderly population population uh, passing away from COVID at, at alarming rates. Um, but she's she's a woman who was given to taking care of others in these in this profession that had long hours um, and and low pay. And so she was often not available to Gifty to take care of her in the ways that Gifty perhaps wanted or needed. Um, but then as as she got older and as she grew ill, um, Gifty finds herself in this role of having to take care of her mother, of having to to mother her mother. Um, and I think many of us, you know, if we um, are lucky enough and and have the kind of relationships um, that that um, allow this, we'll find ourselves in the disposition of having to take care of our parents as they as they age. Um, and so Gifty's doing it perhaps a little younger than than the average person, but but I think um, that that we all potentially might come to this place where we are making decisions for our parents. Um, and that's a, uh, that's a challenging role to step into if you have been accustomed to, um, to, to having yourself um, taken care of. It's such a wonderful point because uh, it, is, it is the obligation done with love of, I think, a child. But it's also mm-hmm. kind of the thing you fear, isn't it? As a child, nobody, no child wants to be in that situation. Right. Yeah. And Gifty, unfortunately, has to be in that situation for the first time um, when she's 11, um, when her when her mother first falls under a depression. Um, and and it's a position, as you say, that, that no child should have to be in. Um, and I think it causes Gifty to grow up too fast. You know, she's a, a character who, as I said before, is really controlled um, and really kind of put together, buttoned down and, and has, has a hard time um, letting loose. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that, that she became an adult too soon. 
You also reminded me in your description just now that this is the case for so many, I, I probably immigrant women, primarily mm-hmm. who take these, uh, who take these jobs in in America, mm-hmm. caring for somebody else's children or somebody else's mm-hmm. grandparents, and what what ends up happening is a lot of that care goes into the work and the family and 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 there is a scene in this where where gifty realizes that a lot of that loving care has gone into the Mm -hmm. taking care of her mother's clients and not necessarily in her own household what 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 does that mean yeah, I mean, I think for, for many of these women, and as you say, they are um, often immigrant women, um, black and brown women, um, who find themselves in in, uh, in these caretaker roles, whether it's as nannies or as home health aides, um, many of whom end up spending most of their days with other families. Um, and in that way, they become a part of these other families that moment in the novel that you're referring to, um, Gifty sees her mother with the children of um, of this woman that she's been taking care of for years. Um, and she recognizes in the way that those children are interacting with her mother, that for them, her mother is a part of the family. Um, and, and this realization that her mother, who in her house has been um, really kind of guarded and unavailable and tired um, and emotionally spent um, is in this other household, warm and open and available. Um, I think that's a shock for Gifty, um, as it must be for so many children who, um, who, who, for whom this is the case, whose mothers work outside of the home. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to a conversation with novelist Yah Jesse. Uh, her new novel is called Transcendent Kingdom. You hear us developing some of the ideas, the themes that she's writing about, this this really interesting work in neuroscience, what it means to uh, be a young woman of color in neuroscience. I want to talk a bit more about that as well. Uh, what it means to understand this kind of reward-seeking, addictive behavior, to be raised by... Uh, an immigrant mother who goes to work caretaking others and to and to eventually have to step into a role maybe maybe too soon of being a caretaker for your own parent. I love this novel. I sent it to everybody who is in the Carrie Miller book circle. So if you're a member of the circle, you're mm-hmm. getting the novel and and I hope you'll love it as much as I do. Uh, I want to talk to you about this relationship that Gifty has with her brother. As you've noted, he dies of a heroin addiction quite young. It's mm. it, it, do you pronounce it Nana? Is, is that Nana? Yeah. Nana. Okay. Um, it, it reminded me of the complexity of the sibling science that came out a few years ago. I know we. I know I did a show about it that says that the relationship that you have with a sibling can be as influential as your relationship with your parents in becoming Mm. an adult, you know, during your childhood. Mm. So, of course, I'm curious about your own life 
were were you raised among brothers, sisters? What, where are you in, in the family? Um, I'm the middle child, ah. um, and I'm between two brothers, yes. <laughs> so there's an older brother and a younger brother. What was your relationship yeah. like with the older, and how different was it from your relationship with the younger one? Well, I was quite close to my older brother. Um, we we were the two that immigrated with our parents. My younger brother was born here, um, and my younger brother is also um, uh, quite a bit younger. He's six years younger, um, so he came around a little later after I'd kind of formed that relationship with my older brother. Um, and I think um, that closeness that uh, we had was kind of forged by um, by immigration, but also by all of our moves. My family moved around a lot when I was younger. Um, and so, you know, every year, every two years, I found myself as the new kid in school, having to learn how to um, make friends all over again. Um, but I never had to do that at home. I always had my brothers, so they were these this built-in um, friendship system, this built-in closeness, um, and and a constant for me um, with, with all the other changes in my life. You know, I wanted to ask you about first sons in Ghana. Um, other novels that explore the Ghanaian culture um, have delved into this, but but I'd love to hear your perception of what it means to be the first boy in the family, in the culture? Mm. Um, well, I think this, this likely isn't just specific to Ghana, but I think there's um, just a, a kind of um, just deep joy that the first son brings to the, the parents and the family. It is a, a patriarchal culture, um, as so many are, um, and for for a long time, that the eldest son um, was the most revered child, was the child who was going to um, take on um, the, the power in that matrilineal um, lineage. And so I think that some of that still exists, that there's, um, that there's a lot of emphasis placed on having a, a son, particularly having your first son. And... And interestingly, uh, Gifty doesn't resent that about her mm. brother Nana. Why? Why not? Um, you're right. Gifty doesn't resent this in her brother, and I think um, I think for one, it's about the fact that that Nana is the only character in the novel, the only person in her family, rather I should say, um, who shows her that kind of. Um, deep attention and care and love and kind of unconditional love. Um, as I said earlier, her, her mother is really um, guarded and difficult and um, and often not emotionally available. And it's it's Nana who who provides her with that kind of attention, that love. There's a moment when when their parents are fighting um, and it's Nana who takes her upstairs and gives her something to color and tells her she's doing a good job. Um, So I think he becomes for her almost a a kind of parental figure while also being a sibling, obviously. Um, But it's for that reason, I think, that she doesn't resent him because she needs him. She loves him fully. 
Yeah, we should say that the their father is alive, but he, after a, a time in Alabama, he has returned to Africa and he recedes further and further from their lives. Is that a is that a fair way to describe it? Yeah, that's correct. He um, he came to America um, really under the. Um, well, pressure is maybe not the right word, but it was Gifty's mother who really wanted to go. Um, so he comes kind of reluctantly, um, and then he finds that, that it's not the place for him. He feels kind of miserable there, and he decides to return to Ghana. Um, and that loss, I think, is one that that, um, that really impacts every member of the family, perhaps Nana most of all. Um, but but you feel that loss throughout throughout the novel. There's such a, a wrenching scene later in the book where Gifty's mother asks, you know, what if I'd what if I'd let Nana stay in Ghana or go back to Ghana mm. with her husband? And boy, you just see all the you know, the regrets and the what-ifs unfurl that no one, I think, is immune to. But in this situation, she's she's lost her most, her most precious son. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've asked you to read a scene uh, that I think gives us some insight into this relationship and Gifty's observation about the dynamic of the family. Will you tell us a little bit about where we are before you read it? Sure. Um, so Nana has become a uh, a pretty skilled and talented basketball player um, in, in in his school in Huntsville, Alabama, and um, Gifty's mother is often working and can't attend the games, but Gifty goes as often as she can. Um, so where we see her in this section, she's um, she's just gone to one of Nana's games. Maybe it would have helped if we were the kind of family who talked about our feelings, who indulged in an I love you, a little every now and again. Instead, I never told Nana how proud I was of him, how much I loved seeing him on the basketball court. On the game days when our mother was at work, I would walk to Nana's high school to watch him play. And then I would wait for him to finish talking to the other players and come out of the locker room so that he and I could walk back home together. Good job, Nana, I would say, when he finally came out in a fog of Axe body spray. Nana's coach always left as soon as the final whistle blew, so the only adult who would still be around was the night janitor, a man whom both Nana and I avoided because his job always made us think about our father. Y'all sure don't act like any siblings I've ever seen, the janitor said that one night. I mean, good job, Nana, like he's your employee or your student or something. You should give him a hug. Come on, man, Nana said. I'm serious. Y'all act like you don't hardly know each other. Go on. Give your sister a hug, he said. Nah, man, we're good, Nana said. He started walking toward the door. Let's go, Gifty, he said, but I was still standing there, looking at the janitor, who was giving me a kids-these-days kind of head shake. Gifty, Nana shouted without turning, and I ran to catch up. I had left our house when it was still light out, but 
By the time the two of us got outside, it was a hot and humid night. Fireflies splashed their greetings all around us. Nana's long strides meant I had to hustle to keep up with him, a half-shuffle, half-jog that I had perfected over the years. Do you think it's weird we don't hug? I asked. Nana ignored me and quickened his pace. These were the Nana ignores everybody days, when my mother and I would steal commiserating glances at each other after one of his moody groans. To Nana, my mother would say, you think you and me are size? Fix your face. To me, she would say, this too shall pass. Novelist Yaa Jesse reading from her new novel, Transcendent Kingdom. So is this, is the, this thing about displays of affection, and, and I mean, and this varies, of course, in all kinds of different families, but is this unique in some ways to this family, you know, a just a part of creating the dynamic of the family in the book? Or is are, are you saying something else about uh, the way Ghanaian culture thinks about hugging, kissing, you know, open displays of affection? Hmm, I think it's a little bit of both. I think uh, many of the Ghanaians that I know are not as kind of effusively um, touchy-feely um, <laughs> prone to saying I love you often and easily um, in the way that, that other Westerners are. Um, but I think it's also specific to this family. There's a particular um, kind of um, uh, just reticence about the, the mother and her personality that I think um, uh, rubs off on these children who uh, never hear an I love you and very rarely um, uh, receive hugs or um, kind of um, displays of affection. So I, I think it's it's a mixture, but I do think that they are, um, even within the culture, they, they stand out for this. Did you think it was odd when you began, you know, going to school in the States that you would hear kids toss off I love you to their parents or their parents say it at the end of a phone <laughs> call or I I can hear you kind of laughing about it. did it did it seem weird to you it did seem weird to me my family um was not really the kind of family um that that used that language um that said I love you um not until not until I got older um, which I think was partly the influence of um, of America on us. Um, but when I was younger, it certainly stood out. So your pa- your parents began saying that once they'd been in the states long enough. Why Why do you think that was? Yeah. Why? Well, I think that they um, that they kind of grew to to like that way of expressing um, affection, but it, it started to feel right to them to do to do that. Um, so I think it, in that way, was kind of a, a positive influence of, of this culture on them, that they recognized that this was um, perhaps a, a sweet thing that they could do. Hmm. Uh, the exploration of the role of the church community and of um, the mother's faith and kind of the way she sweeps her kids along into the church is is really poignant. I should say it's a Pentecostal church in Huntsville, Alabama, where the, I just, I have to say this, where the congregation is every bit as kind of petty 
and mean sometimes and sometimes giving as you'd expect with any kind of gathering of humans. Um, but, but I have to say, I felt like a real fool for not guessing that Gifty's mother is the only woman of color in the entire congregation. I just mm-hmm. assumed it. No, I, I assumed that this was a congregation with many African-Americans in it or mm-hmm. people of color from other places. So did I yeah. miss you you were intentional in springing that surprise on us or it was obvious or or what um well it was intentional to to wait to say it i think um it doesn't show up the first time that they attend church but maybe it it shows up the second time you hear about the church um this is this is not a, a typical situation. Gifty's family has moved to um, the um, the predominantly white side of Huntsville, um, and her mother has basically just chosen the church that's closest to them, um, wherein they are the only uh, Black people there. Um, and um, something that, that I have learned that many people here probably know, um, whether they kind of express it explicitly, but um, churches in America are among the most segregated places um, in America. And right. so, and they are, and the religion isn't practiced the same from church to church. Um, and and Gifty's family learns that the hard way. And, and explain what you mean by the hard way. Mm. Um, so there's a moment that I think is very um, pivotal for Gifty, where after her brother's addiction has been made public, uh, she overhears these two women in her church discussing his condition, um, and the women say something along the lines of, uh, their kind has a taste for drugs. Um, and it's the first time that Gifty recognizes that um, that that her church sees them as as something separate and not just as something separate, but as something lesser than. Um, And it it begins to shake her faith. And I think it's it's the moment where we see her really start to turn away from her church um, and from God. Um, She can't really reconcile um, the fact that that her church um, sees Nana and doesn't see him fully and doesn't give him the same kind of tenderness and care that they would give to any other member of the church. Um, And so she calls this a spiritual wound. Um, And I think it's, uh, it's something that she spends the rest of the novel trying to process what to do with these spiritual wounds. Yeah. She says, um, we were the only black people at the first assemblies of God church. My mother didn't know any better she thought the God of America must be the same as the God of Ghana. Talk through that, would you? What What is she understanding there? Mm, I think what Gifty um, is understanding is that for her mother, there is this kind of continuity of, of religious practice. Her mother had gone to a Pentecostal church in Ghana, um, and and for her, there was... There, wasn't or there shouldn't have been any difference between how one practiced one's faith from place to place. 
Um, and this, I think, has much to do with the fact that she wasn't acquainted with American history, um, with racism in America. She grew up in this place where she was um, uh, like everyone else. And so it's not until she goes to church in Huntsville, Alabama, and starts to see these um, divisions that she recognizes, or rather that her children recognize first, because I think it's the children who kind of um, who kind of lead the, the charge in this, mm-hmm. um, that she recognizes that there's um, that there is a difference in the way that um, that different people practice, um, and this has to do in great part, I think, with with politics, political ideology, um, but as as they find, it also happens on the kind of interpersonal level in this idea that um, that there is a their kind. Were your parents um, seeking community in churches as you made all these moves when you were a kid? Yes, they were. Um, I, I when we first came to America, we lived in Columbus, Ohio, which uh, actually has a pretty large uh, Ghanaian immigrant community, um, and there we were really active members of the African Christian Church, which was mostly West African, uh, mostly Ghanaian and Nigerian. Um, and I think in many ways it was kind of a soft landing from, for our family from uh, practicing Pentecostalism in, in Ghana to coming to this uh, church where um, where we were surrounded by other West Africans in America. Um, and each place that we moved to, one of the first things that my parents would do would be to find a, a church community. Um, and oftentimes they were uh, churches that were um, more racially mixed. Um, but uh, similarly to Gifty, by the time we got to Alabama, we were attending a church um, where we um, were at first the only black people at the church, but uh, after a few years, another family joined as well. Um, so, so I had a, a, a similar understanding of this issue as Gifty. Did you did you feel like, as as with Gifty and Nana, that you understood some things about the church that it took a long time for your parents to understand that. It wasn't as generous, it wasn't as giving, wasn't as open as they might want it to be. Um, I think in some regards, yes. I think my my brothers and I were more attuned to um, questions of race than my parents were. Um, and so in, in that way, we were uh, we were learning about, we were seeing or observing a difference um, that it took my parents longer to see. Um, but in other regards, no, I think um, perhaps because of uh, my parents' um, kind of uh, Afrocentric nature and also my, my father is a, a post-colonialist by profession, um, we were always having the things that we were learn that we were learning in church kind of tempered by this understanding that the reason um, that we practiced this religion at all had to do with colonialism um, mm-hmm. and uh, missionaries. And um, so we, we were getting the, these separate history lessons that I think taught us um, taught us about uh, our, our difference in one capacity, um, but we weren't getting it in another capacity. Boy, that um, is... So I suppose difference along ethnic lines, not difference along race. That is fascinating. 
So even though you were, I, 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 I mean, your father was attending a church and, um, you know, seeking the kind of community that we've been talking about, and yet very aware that, uh, that the reason you were Christian is because mm-hmm. of the colonization of Africa by white missionaries and Western cultures. Is that right? Right, exactly. Um, oh. Yeah, he would um, always kind of make sure that we understood um, that, that this religion, that Christianity came to us um, via colonization and and. In that way, he kind of complicated our relationship to um, to the church. I think in a in an important and positive way. So, where does that leave you today with your faith? Um, <laughs> uh, where does that leave me today? I think it leaves me with a complicated uh, relationship to um, to Christianity, to the church. Um, I think um, I I left the church uh, when I was 14. Um, I had this youth pastor, a visiting youth pastor, who came and said that the night before he'd had a vision wherein two tornadoes came to destroy the earth. One was homosexuality and the other was abortion. Um, And I remember that feeling like the, the straw that broke the camel's back, like I just couldn't quite Stomach that idea, um, and that was that was the last time I attended youth service. Um, but um, to have this place, uh, the church, and have this faith be so central to my life for so many years um, is something that I can't I can't quite shake even today. Like I don't feel comfortable calling myself an atheist. Um, I think because of how fervently I believed when I was a child. I, I feel like it would dishonor um, the child that I was to kind of write it all off. Um, but I've, I've grown so um, just politically distanced from the, the ideologies that were espoused in my um, church, which was part of the religious right. I should say there are other churches that don't um, practice this way or believe this way. Um, but um, but for me, I, I really, I, I had a hard time. Um, I had a hard time kind of continuing that path after some of these um, ideas were, were revealed. And your parents were supportive of you leaving the church at 14. I, I think that's kind of remarkable, too. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that speaks again to the fact that they were always um, asking asking us to question. I don't think they ever really expected us to um, to form this relationship with God just based on the fact that they had one. They wanted us to um, to have one in our own um, on our own terms um, and for our own reasons. And so, um, if we decided that that we uh, we're going to kind of go down a different path. They were, um, they were quick to allow that, um, which I think um, is to their credit. Um, I, I really appreciate that about the way they raised us. Uh, I, I'm interested here as we as we kind of come to the end of our of our conversation. How you have been, uh, I don't know, enlivening your your intellectual life during the pandemic. You've been waiting it out in Brooklyn. Is that right? Mm, yes, I've been in Brooklyn for 
the entirety of the pandemic, wow. um, including the, the height of its um, impact on Brooklyn, on New York, I should say. Um, so it's been an, an interesting and scary and hopeful time to live here. So, so tell me a little bit about how you have been kind of occupying your mind and how do you keep yourself, you know, invigorated intellectually? What have you been doing? Um, well, I have been reading a ton, um, which I think, uh, I think is the way that I always try to stay um, intellectually sharp. Um, I read really widely. I don't just read fiction. I, I try to read as much as possible um, in other genres as well. Um, so I think that's that's been the primary way. I've also, I was never really news obsessive before. You know, I, I had my sites that I would that I would check out every once in a while, but the pandemic has, has turned me into a person who finds herself reading um, the news uh, far more um, <laughs> carefully and, uh, and often. I don't know if that's good or bad. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's more anxiety in- inducing. <laughs> wow. So I don't know if it's, it's particularly good, but, um, but it, it feels like the only thing that's allowing me to have this sense of understanding and um, a way of feeling like I have some sense of control <laughs> over what is happening um, in this kind of chaotic time to at least know and be able to name the things that we are experiencing feels really important to me. One last question here. Um, I've enjoyed hearing authors share a book that has been particularly comforting, given them solace. Maybe it's a longtime favorite. Maybe it's something Mm. new. Is there a book that you you know, maybe it sits on your shelf and you come back to it again and again, or maybe it's just something new that landed on your desk. What would mm-hmm. that be? Sure. Um, well, something new uh, that I read at the end of 2019 and have been thinking about since is All My Puny Sorrows by Miriam Taves. Um, it's a novel about um, a woman who whose sister is quite depressed um, and she is in in the hospital after a suicide attempt and the sister is uh, visiting her while kind of thinking about their their childhood and their relationship. Um, And it's a beautiful novel. It's perhaps the last novel that I can think of that made me weep. um, Mm. and, And I just loved it. All right. It's a wonderful recommendation. Thank you very much for making the conversation possible. Thank you. Thank you. 